Welcome to a new season of the Context Matters podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I like to gather around the table with a wide variety of people who have different life experiences from me. And then we talk about God and Bible theology and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table with us. You can reach out to me through my Narrative of Place website. Since we are starting a brand new season of Context Matters, I absolutely have to start by giving a shout out to my Patreon team members who financially contribute to this podcast. They are the ones who make sure you can listen to this ad-free. Thank you, team. And if you want to join our team, simply click on the link in the episode show notes and choose any amount you'd like to pledge. In this new season, we are going to talk about the importance of reading the Bible with a wide variety of people. And today's focus is on people from around the world. I have the privilege of sitting at the podcast table with two amazing scholars from Azusa Pacific University. They have vastly different places of origin, and yet a singular heart for interpreting the Bible. And the conversation ultimately turns into a master class on hermeneutics. You'll hear that part mostly next week. I'd like to introduce you now to Dr. Alice Yafide and Dr. K. Higuera-Smith. They are both full professors in the Biblical and Religious Studies Department. They are contributing authors to a book that was released last fall called Reading the Bible Around the World. I really wanted to talk to them together because we are engaging how our individual contexts change how we read the Bible, but also how to create space for someone else's view of the Bible. I start first with Alice, and I ask her to explain her context growing up and how that shaped her perceptions of the Bible. I don't know if you already know, I'm from Cameroon, the western part of, I would say central west part of Africa. Precisely near Nigeria, because most people know Nigeria better. So I would always say, okay, we are neighbors to Nigeria. So people get it where I'm from. And um, I grew up in a, the Northwest region in Cameroon in a tribe called Bamisi. So to put it, contextualize things, Cameroon is deeply patriarchal, androcentric, and with a patrilineal family organization and inheritance law. So that really matters in how, as a woman, you are being shaped in social context where you know it is, um, as a woman, everything about you is secondary, right? It's the male, the, the importance of the, the male child because that is the future. And you, the female child, have one purpose to grow up under your father as the leader, like agricultural context where people do a lot of trading. My mother would do a lot of that, did a lot of that to ensure that her brother, her younger brother went to school. It's a context within which I grew up. I'm the first child of my family, but as a first child, I wasn't that important because my brother, who is the second, was more important than I, than I am. And I know that growing up again to further contextualizing, my mother had me, she was barely 15 years old when she had me. My mother was not educated because she worked so hard to make sure that my brother, her brother 
was sent to school. So they did trading. My, uh, my mother's family did trading and my mother would do, go out and say stuff because, you know, he's, um, within that culture is mostly She never went to school. And by the time she was 15, she was married. She never knew her husband. She knew her husband the day she was sent to marriage. So that is the context within which she came. And it is a context that I saw myself. I'm mean, like, this is what is going to happen. My father was not interested in sending me to school because I'm of no importance to him since I was going to get married too. But if what was very fortunate about my life is that I've been very intelligent. So I did of a lot of the education I received is through scholarship, full scholarship. I went to a boarding school and which was run by nuns. And when I, I signed off with the, the lives of the nuns and I'm like, wait, is there a way to escape marriage? You know? So if I'm going to, to join the nuns, maybe I'm not going to get married. And that's what I did. I escaped from home. Never came back home, went to the convent, and I lived in the convent for 15 years. And the goal for was for me then was to escape the patriarchal marriage system. And when I went to the convent, I fell in love with the life too. My <laughs> initial purpose was to run away from this arranged marriage system. So that is the context. Then after high school, I went to, to France, where I, need, I lived for nine years, but I was still also in the convent there. I did my BA in France and um, I got this scholarship to go to, to do my master's because I went to Geneva in the World Council of Churches where I did internship because the BA there for the academic BA for theological studies in this, in my university requires you to do at least three to six months of internship somewhere. So I went to Geneva in the World Council of Churches to do work on the ordination of women. I just wanted to understand why Women having such subordinated role, even women who are in ministry and, and they are in ministry in places where people don't recognize them in villages and not in prominent spots. So I wanted to do, and so most churches also, Protestant Church in Cameroon did ordain women, but other churches did not. So I was so curious in knowing the history and why then in Geneva, I really became passionate about women empowerment. Why I was doing that research and I, and I said to myself, to be an advocate for women empowerment, I need to feel empowered. What people do not also know is that the social structure of the covenant life is also very hierarchical. You know, it's extremely hierarchical. And I felt called to do ministry of this women empowerment for women in Cameroon, particularly. The Bamusing Village more uh, um, specific. And that led me to leave the convent after 15 years when I went to Yale. And that's how my whole passion for one, biblical studies, because I was excellent in both Hebrew and Greek. The, the educational system in France is you do Hebrew and Greek and um, simultaneously for all the years for your bachelor's degree. So I was good in both. But Paul was my problem because Paul's Text in power have been known so broadly to subordinate women, subjugate them, make them passive acquiescing wives. So I was more concerned about those three copies in Paul that has been so hugely and still 
usually use in my context to subjugate women. And that's why I went to do New Testament. Alice, I'd be curious about, was your family religious growing up or was it only when you went to stay with the nuns that you started connecting the patriarchal system in the Bible with the patriarchal system you were experiencing? My family was religious. And I would say by being religious, my mother has always been a very devout Christian. And I think that she caught her source of comfort in the church. Even though the church also, I would say, traumatized her because my mother ended up being a very traumatized woman because the church reinforced the patriarchal system in that when she would complain about issues at home, they would say, basically advise her to be a good wife. So she internalized the problem to be her. If she's really that very acquiescing, submissive wife, then she will not have a problem. So they sent her, every time she went, brought a problem to the church, they sent her back home to be more obedient, more acquiescing, more a good wife, you know? So I saw that. And that, Basically, was one of the things that propelled me to say, if I have any way of getting away from the system, I will. You know, because again, you have to remember the Bible is very, is, is a text. It's a cultural text, but it's a text that is revered, but it's a cultural text. So it is also used to legitimize a lot of cultural norms. Right. And that's what happens and still happens. Now, I'd like to introduce you to my other guest, Dr. K. Hugera-Smith. And although she and Alice share the same university context now, they have different contexts that have shaped their perspectives on the Bible. The chapter she contributed to the book, Reading the Bible Around the World, is on hybridity and multiculturalism. And so I asked her, did that come from your childhood context? So I have an Anglo-European father had my parents have passed on but and a uh, mexican spanish mexican american mother my grandparents spanish was their original language although they were fluent in english and but interestingly my family has been here in california for several generations mm. we hear a lot about uh, tejana culture but uh, i'm a californiana my family has been here speaking spanish since the the Probably the 1500s. My father was an only child. Uh, my Anglo-European father raised by his grandparents. So I really had no family on his side. But on my mother's side, I had a massive family of aunts and uncles and tios and tias and cousins and, and second cousins and third cousins. And we would all gather at my grandfather's old rancho once uh, two or three times a month. So that was very much the culture that shaped me. And I didn't appreciate how much it shaped me because I was able to shapeshift in Latinx culture and in white culture very easily, especially look at me. I look very white. Yet, especially as I matured, I see how deeply that that childhood shaped me. And I began to notice it in my research hmm. because I began to notice that as I was drawn to particular research projects, there was a pattern. And that pattern always was that those social groups in the Bible who were liminal or marginal or who were in those interstitial spaces between 
more dominant social groups, those were the ones that intrigued me the most. Yes. So very early on, even though that was not my training, when I was in, in grad school, I was asking questions about sociology, about how do these groups interact and what is, what's the significance? And I did have some encouragement by one of my doctoral advisors, but my primary doctoral advisor was a historical literary critic and he he didn't want any of that. So I really had to sort of suppress that until I got out on my own and began to do my own research. But it's it's fascinated me about my own story that my hybrid social identity has affected how I interpret the Bible. It seems to affect the people that maybe you find a similarity with. It's like you're looking at a different kind of character than other people are are looking at, which is one of the great benefits of reading with different kinds of people is you see different characters because people like you are drawn to mm-hmm. a character that maybe I skip or I end up teaching on characters that people are like, who, where is that story? I've never read that story before. Was, was mm-hmm. Bible and religion interwoven throughout your large family network? Yes, we were Catholic. I was raised Catholic. And I became a follower of the Jesus movement back in the 1970s. And since that time have been in Protestant circles, but it's fascinating how much my Catholicism still shapes me to this day. It, again, it's, it's deep in me. I still see myself as a cultural Catholic. We were Catholic and the church was very much built into the family system, deeply built into it. My, my grandmother had a, a five foot statue of St. Anthony right in her little living room, you know, and that shaped everything we did. Of course, the calendar year, the liturgical year, it, it shaped all of us. Yes. At what point did you know you wanted to study Bible professionally? I actually didn't want to study Bible. I, I would have preferred to study religion. I got really interested in Jewish studies and I was really intrigued by the question. And this is a, a young, naive person who didn't really understand what I was even asking, but I was really intrigued by the question of as to why Jews and Christians read the same Bible, but we get such different yes. meaning out of it. And I couldn't figure that out because it seems so self-evident to Jews, one particular meaning and a different meaning seems so self-evident to Christians. And so I actually pursued my bachelor's degree in Jewish studies specifically because I wanted to immerse myself in that world in order to see why they read the Bible a certain way. I've been very interested in cross-cultural issues. I've spent some time in Asia in my early 20s, and and that really shaped me, helped me to realize how much what I thought was self-evident was actually my culture. And so when I went to grad school, I would have preferred probably not necessarily, I didn't want to do Jewish studies because I'm not Jewish and I didn't think I'd have a chance to find a, a teaching job, but I wanted to do some sort of work on early Jewish Christian interaction. So at the time, Hebrew Union College in Los Angeles and Claremont Graduate University had a relationship where you could work together on projects together with them. So. I was doing um, midrash and such questions. And in the end, just because of the direction of my dissertation, 
I ended up working in Bible. So I sort of backed into it more than anything else. Alice, I'd be curious because you mentioned the fact that the Bible is a cultural text and also a revered text. Mm -hmm. At what point in your journey did did you feel like you could revere the Bible and honor it as God's word and yet also bring a critique against it? I think that during the course of my study, both in Paris and in the U.S., when you begin doing close reading of texts, you know, you begin to see even within the tradition of the text itself, how texts, especially when you look at tradition history, you will see that one text that is used in terms of intertextuality is used in recon- reconfigured and recontextualized ways to address specific situations of the context that being addressed. So when I started reading and said, wait a minute, the biblical writers themselves are recontextualizing all the time to address lived experiences of the addressees. Isn't it what the Bible is all about? First of all, the Bible is the word of God for the people of God, right? And if it's the word of God for the people of God, the essence is it needs to become flesh. It within the, the contents that the text is being read so that transformation may happen, you know. So for, for me, I became more and more with this fundamental theological conviction that for the Bible to become a living word of God in flesh or become taking flesh incarnated within diverse cultural locations, the text must be recontextualized to address the lived experiences of people within their social locations. And that's when I became very passionate. And then I've seen also the, how the word of God is becoming such in, uh, in my own lived experiences. And that's why I grew, I developed such passion in helping, especially as a professor, helping my students to who again, living in this more globalized context to know and a, a classroom that is very diverse. To say, look, my, as a teacher, I'm not just there to impart information. It has to be formation and transformation too. And for that to happen, I have to find ways of helping the students read so that they take seriously their own social locations. I know that it really matters and that the word of God is speaking to them within their own social location and addressing them within that space so that they become it becomes a living word that they are passionate about. And since then, that's how I've been teaching. It's like, it's important. It's important for my life and it's important for the students too. And I think it's important for the church as a community of believers and Christo that read the same word and to know that that word is transforming them in different ways, yeah. addressing different realities. And that is a beautiful thing. One of the things I really appreciate about the book that you are both authors in is it's almost a world history and also biblical history and biblical interpretation. And Alice, I'm going to ask you this again, because your chapter, when I flipped to your chapter first, (laughs) I was like, your chapter is titled African Approaches. And I thought, whoa, (laughs) that is That's a a task because Africa continent, I mean, we use Africa as such like a monolithic term, but the diversity of tribes and languages and experiences and colonization is Uh so 
diverse. Mm-hmm. How did you do this in one chapter? Can you like explain a little bit about what you were getting after and how it can fall under a single title, African Approaches? Right. I use the term Africa in a book, not as a monolithic, homogeneous um, entity. So is Africa is socially, culturally, religiously, ethnically, and linguistically very diverse. So it's a misnomer to see it as a single country. So I don't use it in that way. I use it in, in, in that, yes, it's very diverse, but there's some commonalities among Africans, especially sub-Sahara African, this collective memory of colonial, the colonial past, the cultural legacies of post-colonial present that, and the fact also that we share a similar cultural heritage, patriarchal structure, and many social characteristics. So that is in terms of some commonalities, but it's always important to highlight the fact that it is possible within these diverse cultural experiences to use interpretive frameworks. Like in Africa, they lose a lot of um, cultural hermeneutics or contextual approaches, but to address these multidimensional sociocultural groups. But with the understanding that the kinds of interpretation we do will be differently contextualized within particular social locations. Right. So we can use the same umbrella framework of cultural hermeneutics, but the conclusions we arrived or how we make meaning of the text will be different because we are addressing very diverse lived experiences. Hmm. So you will see African biblical scholars will be, we will say we use cultural hermeneutics. We say we use post-colonial feminist hermeneutics, but our conclusions in this reading process, it looks very different mm. because of the reality of the diverse realities. Like, but particularly, I'm very interested in gender-centric readings of texts. When I do a gender-centric reading of the text, I still also recognize that as a woman, my experience as a woman is very different from other women in Cameroon, in Bamisin, their own social experiences because of the intersectional um, in inequalities that shape their own life experiences. So even for that context, I cannot say this is how we read text. This is what text mean. I will still have to acknowledge that how I read text and the conclusion I draw from text will be different from a woman that does not have the level of education that I have, does not have the, the same socioeconomic privilege that I have, that she will read that text also differently, but we can still use the same framework to get at those diverse conclusions. Some of you may remember a couple years ago when I had Dr. Vince Bantu on this podcast, we talked about the spread of very early Christianity from Jerusalem into sub-Saharan Africa. If you missed that episode, go back and listen to it. It's just so fascinating. But I am curious to hear from Alice about the changes in African Christian scholarship, especially in a post-colonial time. So as all these various countries in Africa became politically independent, did their conclusions or the focus of their biblical studies change? I would say that in terms of biblical scholarship, follow along with other ways of 
of um, reading different cultural texts. For instance, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, post-colonial sub-Saharan Africa, you, there were two trends that became very common. You have enculturation hermeneutics and you have liberation hermeneutics, right? That you will even see within the context of Africa, liberation hermeneutics became very popular in South Africa. Why? The liberation hermeneutics was a tool that was used to address um, this multi-layered um, systemic oppression, particularly economic oppression, that liberation hermeneutics, which had its genesis in South America, became very popular in Africa because it is a, a lens that have been in, is appropriate for addressing the socioeconomic issues there. So the Bible then now started interpreting text within that culture, using that framework to address the specific sociocultural economic situations. And then you move, then you will see that more in the Western Africa is enculturation analytics, right? That is, it's like the, the need for to taking seriously and appreciating African cultural norms, which we know that were so depreciated and um, devalued. Now people, there's this, let's return to culture. So you use enculturation hermeneutics that now taking at using culture and cultural experiences as the beginning point for reading the Bible. And so that became extremely popular at it and widespread in, in those regions. Even it was used to in South Africa, but not as liberation hermeneutics. But now, women reading, using both frameworks begin to say, wait a minute, enculturation humanities is addressing culture, yes, but it's not really addressing the gender nature of culture. The, those gender aspects that brings about inequalities, it's not addressing the patriarchal systems that allows still for the subjugation and oppression of women. So, Women started using African biblical scholars started reading using their feminist enculturation hermeneutics, which becomes a very gender centric lens that addresses issues that are particularly pertinent to women and those gaps that they found in, in both enculturation hermeneutics and liberation hermeneutics. Hmm. Hey, your challenge in the chapter that you wrote is different than your other co-authors because everyone else seems to get a continent. So Europe, Africa, Asia, you don't get a continent. <laughs> you referred to this a little bit in your introduction, but you're referring to diaspora and people who are moving and shifting. And so how does that fit in the theme of the book? And Maybe even before we do that, can you define diaspora for us? Sure. Diaspora comes from Greek, and it traditionally refers to the dispersion of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And in my work in Jewish studies, I saw that diaspora, which often results in exile, has become, even to this day, uh, one of the major theological categories of any kind of Judaic system. In fact, some scholars argue that it is fundamental to any kind of Judaic system. And I begin to think about how the concept of diaspora or dispersion, geographic dispersion, really doesn't factor into very many major theological discussions in Christianity. 
And yet, if you think about it, we have the African dispersion, the African Americans, Afro Latina, Latinx folks, uh, Africans in Europe and Asia. We have the, the uh, Latinx dispersion, Asian dispersion that we talk about the Asian diaspora, the Latinx diaspora. So the experience in the world today, the global experience is one of diaspora for many, many people. And that experience of either of uh, exile, of um, having to uh, be dispersed because of uh, either political or economic or family concerns is a, a traumatizing experience, certainly for first generation folks. And it it also really affects how we think about the world for second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth generation folks. It shapes identity in major, major ways. We talk about Sundays in North America as being the most segregated time period because we all kind of disperse into these cultural churches. And I wonder how you would address or at least give us advice for churches that we tend to think, but we all live, like in my context, we all live in Philadelphia, right? Like we, we are all sharing the same geographical location? Why can't we come together and study the same text together? So like, how do we do that? And, or is it possible to do that given the diversity of all of our, all of our backgrounds and points of origin? Well, both uh, Alice and I would argue that, or do argue that we need to pay much more attention to our contemporary social location when interpreting the Bible. When it comes to the task of interpretation, we have to deal with the issue of pre-assumptions or presuppositions. In some sense, our presuppositions are so hard to find. <laughs> They're hard to find yep. unless you're talking to people who are different from you, right? Because otherwise, you you don't exactly. you're not aware yeah. of them. Yes. So, in uh, as you well know, being a biblical scholar in. Uh, so much of classic biblical scholarship is based on on the on the presupposition that our presuppositions get in the way of meaning, and they often do. They cause us to see things that aren't there in the text, and they cause us not to see things that are there in the text. So, as you mentioned, being interested in particular characters in the text, our tradition of male European clerics being the ones to interpret the Bible uh, has resulted in a, a paucity of information until the last 50 years or so on the female characters in the Bible. And we can give a lot of other examples of how those presuppositions blind us. Of course, so the exercise of trying to, in some sense, recognize those presuppositions and at least go through the performance of trying to set them aside, I think is is an important exercise. But on the other hand, presuppositions are crucial for us because we cannot cognize anything in the world without presuppositions. And it's this managing of the, of the positive or the helpful effects of presuppositions in constructing meaning and the hindering effects of presuppositions that construct meaning is the task that we have as biblical scholars and helping our students and our readers to reflect on and practice recognizing those differences is crucial. So as I mentioned, my my own social location as a female, as a female living in Southern California in the 20th and 21st century, 
as a Latina slash white woman, that all shapes me. And my social presuppositions, my social experiences cause me to ask certain urgent questions that are meaningful and urgent to me, but may not be urgent to another person who has a different social experience. It's exploring those presuppositions about what it is about my Latinx heritage that causes me to ask certain questions of the Bible that we are exploring in this book. And I think that part of biblical scholarship is has been something that has been gaining purchase in the last uh, 20 years or so, but still has a long way to go. Too often, those who argue, those who limit themselves to classic biblical scholarship want to assume that they have successfully effaced themselves and are able to read the text without presuppositions. It's so and true. <laughs> it, it drives me crazy, you know, especially, I mean, I'm, I'm not young. I'm, I, I'm in my late sixties. So most of the male scholars that I grew up or was educated under, I mean, their scholarship was impeccable. It was wonderful, but then they would make these broad conclusions just as if they were fact. And they weren't. They were conclusions that made sense in their social location, but they would never name that. And so, of course, contemporary scholars and and very few, to be honest, very few scholars under 40 do that anymore at all. I think there's been a huge shift in our field. But the managing of presuppositions is really crucial to bring to the fore and to discuss and to reflect on when we approach meaning in any text or any event, whether it's the Bible, whether it's a play, whether it's a political event or any kind of media that is relayed to us, we have to be thinking about our presuppositions. This is genius and is challenging and something we do not always specifically address in church. But what a massive value it is for us to collectively and in our community try to exercise the art of identifying our presuppositions. This is already a rich conversation, and we will continue it next week when we consider more about the value of reading the Bible around the world. If you are listening to this podcast right as I release it, in fact, any time between May 11th and May 31st of 2023, then if you are interested in purchasing this book, you can do it for 30% off and free shipping if you're in North America. You can go to ivppress.com, choose Reading the Bible Around the World, and use the code PLACE23. That is P-L-A-C-E-2-3, and you'll get 30% off and free shipping. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits in the final mix, and Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is really good to be with you. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you.